The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to those here in this space and those joining us via live stream. I'm Sam King, your worship associate for this morning, and I'm pleased to be joining Reverend Jamie Henson Rieger on the chancel. He's the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Indianapolis, and prior to ministry, he studied history, economics, and mathematics in college, and had an 18-year-long career in supporting community banking. And also, he has a lifelong love of art, philosophy, and music, and he's grateful to serve in a religious tradition that draws on diverse sources of wisdom and inspiration, with transformative love and a call to justice at the center. In his spare time, he loves spending time with his family, including their two dogs, playing guitar, and learning Spanish. And as you all know, a worship service isn't just the people sitting up here, so I also want to say a thank you to our musicians, our tech team, our sextons, our ushers, the folks who brought in the flowers, the folks who will be giving announcements and reflections. Thank you all. We hope that all of you here or on live stream have an order of service so that you can follow along in worship. For those of you who are joining us in the live stream, uh, you can get a link to the order of service in the video description. And also, if you have issues or problems at any time, please know that there's somebody monitoring the chat to answer any questions. A quick COVID note, those of us up here who will speak or sing without masks are all vaccinated, boosted, and have had an antigen test this morning. Uh, thank you all for continuing to mask and to care for one another. Again, welcome. Now, please join me in saying our unison chalice lighting. The words are in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together.
this is your first time watching, thank you for joining us. If you fill out one of our connection forms, we'll send you our weekly newsletter, as well as a link to the order of service and Sunday live stream each week. Those forms are on the welcome table outside, or there's also a link in the order of service and video description. The order of service lists some upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect. Please engage in any or all that are of interest to you. There are also a few that I wanted to call your attention to. Many of you know that in addition to being a former minister of this congregation and head of the National Unitarian Universalist Association, Reverend John Burens is a historian, and he recently published a book about the history of UUSF. After the service, he'll be signing books in the TSK room. Passover is coming up in just a couple weeks, and we'll be hosting a Seder at UUSF on Friday, April 7th. There's more information in the order of service, and if you're interested in attending, please stop by the table after the service and sign up. Also, uh, everyone, please save the date for the ordination of Meg McGuire. Meg was our former ministerial intern, and she'll be jointly ordained into the Unitarian Universalist Ministry by UUSF and her home congregation in Columbus. The ordination will be held at UUSF on Sunday, April 16th at 2 p.m. with a reception to follow, and it'll also be available via live stream. There's a link to RSVP in the flame if you check your email. Uh, also, the Faithful Fools and Outreach Ministry with this congregation is celebrating 25 years on April 1st, right here at the church. Come and celebrate with them with performances. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they'll be having performances, uh, and you can buy tickets after the service for yourself or for somebody else who's unable to afford one. Uh, there'll be a table uh, right in the hallway. Uh, and next, I'd like to invite David and Dolores uh, Hilbrand up for an announcement about our annual pledge drive. Thank you, Sam. Hi, we're here again, Dolores. And David. Heilbrunn, the chairs of the annual giving effort this year. Each year, your annual contribution to the church is for our fiscal year, which begins on July 1st and goes to June 30th of the next year. Your contributions provide over half of the church's budget. And now, tis the season to get your pledge in. We want to thank the 79 households who have already handed in their pledges. The total is now about $287,000. Thank you so much. If you are among those who have made your pledge, then after our service, do come to the pledge table in the gallery to sign your name on one of the pennant banners that we will hang to honor your commitment and support for this community. And if you haven't pledged that, you can also come to the table and talk to the folks out there if you have any questions about this annual giving and make your pledge. Our table is in front of our special, quote, banner brainstorming bulletin board. How's that for alliteration? <laughs> this Sunday, you will see the second cent of drafts for the new church banners, which are based on the feedback we got from all of you so far. 
So come look at the latest banner suggestions and give your thoughts on how to announce ourselves to the world. Ultimately, the banners we design will hang on Gary Boulevard where it splits, leading east to the church coming down Gary from the west. We still have a way to go to raise $750,000 needed for next year, so every pledge is important, no matter how little or big it is. Thank you all for your generous support. Let's, Let's make, make this a banner, banner year. Thank you for giving that important announcement. Uh, and now I'd like to invite Reverend Laura Shenem up for a couple of announcements. Good morning, everyone. Boy, do we have a lot to celebrate in this congregation. We have this banner year going, we have these pledges coming in, we have so many announcements, so many events bringing us together in community. Let's just take a deep breath and soak all that in. All of the goodness, all of the things that we're doing together after this so many years of the pandemic. Um, I think we, we were talking the other day, it's been three years. We've had the three year anniversary of being shut down after the pandemic. And here we are. And we have so many things to be grateful for. So I'm also aware of all of the things that have been announced this morning, all of the messages that have been shared. And I've got a couple more to share with you. The first item to share is went out in the flame this past week, and I'm going to read what we sent out to ensure we have consistent messaging. Joe Chabot, who has served as coordinator of our young adult programming and served as our minister's assistant and an administrative support of our programming, will be transitioning out of these roles at the end of this March. Joe has been a champion of welcoming and building relationships among our young adults over the nearly eight years they have worked at UUSF and helped move our administrative work into more codified systems and increasingly making use of technology that has supported our work. We appreciate Joe's willingness to stay on through the transition from ministry from Alice and Jacks to myself, and we wish them well in the transitions of life and work ahead. We will celebrate Joe and his time here as we welcome and celebrate the newest class of new members and the official end of our annual giving campaign next Sunday, March 26th, after the service. And there's information in your order of service on how you can contribute to that. We hope you join in the celebrations, and those who would like to send cards or bring gifts to Joe can do that that day or send them directly to the church in care of him. The second item involves the repair of an ouch that happened during the worship service on Sunday, January 29th. One of the tools that we have rolled out to staff and lay leaders is the ability to say, ouch, oops, and whoa. Ouch is said when something is said or done that causes harm. And for the purpose of this tool, harm is defined as something that causes pain to another person through verbal, e emotional, or physical means. When someone says, ouch, we, Reverend Southern and I, pause, listen, and determine next steps. 
Most often, these steps include listening to those involved, both to the persons or persons harmed, and those who cause the harm. An additional conversation is had to determine outcomes or hopes for repair, and then repair is made. These are the steps that were used for the ouch during the service on Sunday, January 29th. And the decision for repair made by all involved was for Reverend Burens to offer a statement. I would like to invite Reverend Burens forward to share his words. Well, here's the book at long last. But it also comes with an apology, not only for how long it took to produce it, but when I last spoke about it from the pulpit here, I caused that ouch by too tightly compressing an important phase in our history. I quoted Horace Davis, who was one of our most prominent lay leaders 150 years ago, a congressman in the 1870s, married to the daughter of Thomas Starr King, no less. Horace was trying to seek a compromise as a congressman on that always tough subject, immigration. Difficult then as it is now. He saw most migrants from China being exploited for the benefit of the railroads and other employers. It was not what he then called natural immigration of entire families. There were nine men from China for every one woman. My mistake was to boil down his long speech in Congress to a single sentence, saying that, quote, he blushed to even think of those women, implicitly as exploited sex workers, which not all were. This unconsciously reinforced a sexualized stereotype of Asian women, one that I never had in mind, but for which I now sincerely apologize. Because I was rightly called to account for reinforcing a sexist and racist stereotype, I temporarily withdrew the book, which was rather easily done since, lacking a traditional publisher for what might have provided better editing, I'd resorted to what is now called director on demand publishing. And today I also want to publicly thank my dear friend Kat Liu, who, for, who then gave the whole book another careful reread from an anti-oppressionist point of view. She found a couple of other places where I had tried to tell a complex story with insufficient context and also caught a few remaining typos. But today this book, imperfect as it is, I now offer to you, my fellow imperfect Unitarian Universalists, remembering that our collective names seem to imply a certain perfection. Yet we are also beginning to realize that perfectionism is a leading characteristic of the dominant culture of white supremacy, which we are all slowly, painfully trying to transcend. So I also offer this moment as a testimony to our ability to hear an ouch, to get past being defensive, to practice restorative justice and apologies, and to promote learning from one another. Copies of the book will be for sale in the Thomas Starr King Room, as Sam said, and I will gladly inscribe copies for each of you personally. Part of the proceeds will go back to our Society for Community Work, which so generously provided some of the work, or some of the funding, 
to allow for the book's design and for the purchase of permissions of the many images that are included. Thank you so very much for hearing me. Thank you, Reverend Burens. Part of this work is to continue to have conversations to process our responses to these ouches and ask questions on how we can do better. Reverend Southern and I will be hosting a White Allies group on Thursday, March 30th at 6 p.m., and you'll find more details in your order of service. If you'd like to speak with us one-on-one -on -one and can't make it that night, then please feel free to reach out and make an appointment. Thank you so much. Thank you, Reverend Laura and Reverend John Burens. Um, now I know that that was a whirlwind of announcements, so let's take a moment to greet one another. When you hear a musical cue, you'll know that it's time to sit back down. Good morning again. It is so wonderful to be here with all of you. Our story uh, today is called The Morning After Creation. It was the morning after creation and all of the animals had assembled to pick out their niches, their own particular thing that they would do so there would not be too much competition with one another. So, for example, Goat said, I will pick eating everything, like everything, even tin cans and walking straight up mountains. And Tiger Shark said, hey, I like that. I will pick eating everything like everything, even license plates, but swimming in the sea. Then Flounder, who has two eyes on one side of his face, said, if you're going to be swimming around up there, I'll pick laying around on the bottom of the ocean and looking like a weird Picasso fish. Eagle said, has anyone taken soaring majestically? I'll take soaring majestically if that's still available. To which Hawk said, huh, I was going to take soaring majestically, let's talk. So all the animals were working out like this, what their thing was going to be, their own niche on earth. But then humans said, my niche will be being important. <laughs> Say that again, said the animals. My thing will be being important, said human, the most important. There was an embarrassed silence. You can't pick being most important, said Crow. That's not a thing. We're all important. How about your thing is walking on two legs and holding committee meetings? <laughs> so human agreed to walking on two legs and having committee meetings, but secretly he said to himself, and also being the most important. And the animals said to each other, let's keep an eye on that one. So each animal did its chosen thing, and because they had chosen pretty well, the animals mostly lived in balance and respected each other's boundaries. Except for human. Human, because he secretly considered himself the most important, kept expanding into other animals' territory. For example, lots of animals fished in the sea, but human fished so much and so aggressively, he began to empty out the ocean for the other animals, and then he filled it with garbage instead. Lots of animals built their homes in the forest, 
But Human began to chop down the forests themselves to build homes for himself absolutely everywhere. Lots of the animals burrowed down into the Earth Mother for food and shelter. But Human began to dig the Earth Mother up in great gouges, looking for oil and minerals and other things useful to Human. He even blew the tops off of entire mountains when it suited him. Over time, Human's behavior became so outrageous and so disruptive to the other animals that Dog decided something needed to be done. He decided to domesticate himself to get closer to humans so he could understand. Eventually, Dog went to live in human's house and became a sort of constant companion to human and his family. They became friends of sorts, except that human still believed himself most important. Dog tried to teach human about other things that were equally important. When they went out for walks, Dog would leap ahead in joy, pointing out the beauty of the fields and the forests. He tried to teach human how to bury his nose deep into the ground to catch the glorious scent of other living beings. Human didn't get it. He tried to teach human the respectful way to greet another being with proper bows and butt sniffs. Human didn't get it. He tried to teach human how to nap and play and not be so important. Human sometimes got it and then it seemed like he forgot it again. Human could be frustrating. What did happen, though, over time, is that human learned to love dog and become curious about him. He began to try to understand how the world might look from dog's point of view, not for his own ends, but just because he wanted to be a better friend to dog. In time, human discovered that other animals were also trying to teach him things, not just dog, but cat and horse and cow and crow and even whale from far away in the ocean. And human began to wonder for the first time if he was the most important animal after all. It was a beginning. This story doesn't have an ending yet. I wonder if we can think one up together. Now please join me in saying the words of our Unison Covenant and uh, then singing our doxology. The words are in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another.
Good morning. My name is Sarah Fareed. Every year during this time, when we are asked to commit financially to make this congregation and its life possible for the next year, some folks are asked to share about their journey to and with UUSF, about why they love this place. This year, I get to share with you. Caring community. When we moved to San Francisco in 2010, I was ready to part ways with my Catholic upbringing, but I didn't want to lose traditions and structure that felt soothing in the Catholic and Maronite churches I grew up in. When we moved here, I was starting over again to build community, something I'd done many times over. I knew I needed a place I could feel inspired, grounded, informed, a place where my values would be reinforced by other loving adults for my kids, and one where my partner would feel free to hold his own beliefs and participate or not. We joined the RE program, and 12 years later, I serve today as chair of the Family Ministry Committee. Some of our favorite memories were made here with all of you. The kids climbing the church tower, while well, my nerves nearly got the best of me, but Joe Dellert quietly encouraged the kids and supported me to trust that they could do it. Serving dinners at the winter shelter and waffle breakfasts with the RE families, games, art, sing-alongs, canoe rides, and walks in the trees at the retreat. Just this week, Davia was reminiscing about the very unique experience of being in a tippy canoe with an older gentleman they didn't know and how the whole thing was so you-you and just fabulous. Our whole lives curriculum has been essential for my kids. It further reinforced that all of who they are is important and seen here. Along the way, UUSF became much more than a place to reinforce my values for my kids. In small group ministry, I learned to listen better to others, and maybe more importantly for me at the time, to myself. I heard my own deepest, most honest voice come to life, and I made joyful connections with members throughout the church community. More recently, I joined the pastoral care ministry and gained a sense of all of the ways in which this devoted group of people provides such thoughtful care, meals and phone calls, cards, rides, and so much more when things might be hardest for us. Just one more way UUSF benefits us all. We've always felt welcome here, no matter how much we could contribute. And we were, as we were, and are able to do more, we did more. And we know we've received much, much more in return. Thank you.
Our reading for this morning is The Stream of Life by Rabindranath Tagore. The same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measures. It is the same life that shoots in joy through the dust of the earth in numberless blades of grass and breaks into tumultuous waves of leaves and flowers. It is the same life that is rocked in the ocean cradle of birth and of death, in ebb and in flow. I feel my limbs are made glorious by the touch of this world of life. And my pride is from the life throb of ages dancing in my blood this moment. I invite us into a time of meditation, prayer, and reflection. Let's take a breath together, breathing in, breathing out. And one more breath, breathing in, breathing out. Let us be conscious this morning of all the ways we are connected, connected to each other and to community, connected to our earth, which grounds and nurtures and sustains us, connected to the mystery of life, to the energies of healing, hope, and possibility that are ever present in the world, which companion us even in our sorrow, even when they may feel distant and inaccessible. And then may we be grateful that in hard times we may be the bearers of healing, hope, and possibility for each other, that imperfect vessels as we are, just as we are, we may be the bringers of love and kindness, of care and compassion to one another, with a word, a gaze, a steadying hand, or with just our presence, or willingness to be there for one another. Let us be grateful for the gifts that we have been given that make us strong, resilient, and creative beings and let us remember always that we are held in love. I invite us now to share a moment of silence together. This is a poem by Joy Harjo called Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self, to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning, over Salt River, circled in blue sky and wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, 
see ourselves and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. Blessed be and amen. Before I go into my sermon, I just want to thank you all again for welcoming me to be with your community and worship this Sunday morning in this uh, astonishingly beautiful sanctuary space. Uh, and uh, much thanks to the worship team and the tech team for, for welcoming me and to the choir and musicians for that uh, transcendent music this morning. It is a delight to be with you. This story doesn't have an ending. 
we said. I wonder if we could think up a new one together. The stories we tell about who we are and where we come from and how we all relate together and who is the most important, these stories matter. I want to talk a little bit today about old stories and new stories and why it matters. But first, I want to tell you my favorite Charles Darwin story as an introduction to a new kind of story about life that he has helped us to tell. February 12th was uh, Charles Darwin's birthday. It's a weekend that many UU congregations celebrate as Evolution Sunday. So you can also think of this as a very, very belated happy 214th birthday to Charles Darwin. So Charles Darwin, from a very young age, had a hobby of collecting and classifying living things. And he became rather a good amateur naturalist in the process of practicing his hobby. And in particular, as a young student at Christ College at Cambridge, he got taken up in the popular craze of the day for collecting beetles. You don't think as a parent that your kid is gonna go off to college and get mixed up in entomology, but it happens. So one day, Charles was out on the quad, busy not doing his homework, and he happened to spy an unfamiliar species of beetle climbing on a tree. And excited by his find, he stopped to gather it in his right hand, whereupon he noticed that there was a regular caravan of beetles going up and down the trunk, so he grabbed another a specimen in his left hand, and then, having run out of useful appendages, but with more beetles still within easy reach, he did what any coleopterologist, any beetle guy worth his salt would do. He put the beetles in his mouth for safekeeping so he could gather some more. Whereupon the beetles, much aggrieved and aggressed upon, sprayed a noxious blast of chemicals from their hind ends directly onto his tongue. So, from Charles Darwin, we learned two important things. All life on Earth arose from a common ancestor through a continuously unfolding natural process that took place over billions of years. And very important, when securing beetles with your mouth for safekeeping, be sure to place them between the lips, butt side facing out. If you remember one thing from this sermon, right? You might not think so from this anecdote, but Charles Darwin was one of the greatest geniuses who ever lived and one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. The influence of Darwin's work on later scientific study is incalculable. He is the foundation from which all life scientists and all natural historians begin. Outside the sciences, his ideas shook the pillars of Western civilization and challenged old, worn-out notions of philosophy and religion. He revolutionized our understanding of what it means to be human and what our place in the web of life is, such that more than 150 years later, we are still working out the implications of his discoveries. And yet, Darwin is a different kind of genius than what we usually think of. He's, he's not the picture we usually have of this unparalleled mind having this kind of sudden eureka moment, and then all these great ideas just spill out of their overheated brain. He is not an Einstein imagining himself riding on a beam of light and having a flash of insight that becomes the theory of special relativity. He's not the young Sir Isaac Newton who cooped up at home for a couple of summers, college being closed for the plague, invented calculus, optics, and the law of gravity just to kill some time. 
That is a true story. Isaac Newton redefined what it means to say, yeah, I had a pretty good year. Darwin's genius was of a different sort. Darwin's genius was grounded in a passionate love of seeing, of carefully examining the natural world all around him, of taking it all in and sketching it out in his notebooks, and then in the enormous patience with which he made his scientific case, with which he formulated his ideas after he had begun to suspect what he had begun to suspect. He painstakingly accumulated data and corroborating evidence from many different scientific branches, zoology, geology, botany, paleontology, animal husbandry, and from the study of many diverse kinds of life. Right? Beetles, turtles, the famous Galapagos finches, carrier pigeons, bivalves, orchids, primates. He built the case for his great idea from a mountain of evidence over decades of work, only finally taking his ideas to the public when it seemed like he was about to be scooped by someone else. And by then, his work was unassailable. So Charles Darwin, of course, is the person credited with the discovery of evolution through natural selection. That is to say, he discovered that all present-day living things, you, me, algae, antelopes, orchids, badgers, mushrooms, mosquitoes, all can be traced back through time to a single common ancestor, which was basically a leaky bag of cell bits powered by light. And he discovered that all of this magnificent living variation sprang up through the process of natural selection, whereby small changes caused by random mutations accumulate over time as they prove beneficial to an organism's survival and reproduction, multiply those selected changes by billions of years, and you can go from single-celled organisms like bacterium to multi-celled organisms like Ryan Gosling. And it was Darwin's genius to painstakingly accumulate a massive body of evidence through travels all over the world in order to make his case. And today, 214 years after Darwin's birth, his vision of evolution is as much established fact as anything in science can be. And yet the radical implications of his discovery and the spiritual implications of his discovery, we are still wrestling with. Because evolution calls us to rethink and reimagine our relationship to life on Earth. Before the theory of evolution, the fundamental story to explain the appearance and diversity of life on Earth, at least in the West, which is where we are, was the book of Genesis, right? In the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament. The book of Genesis says, of course, that the universe the earth and all life was created over the course of six days by God, and then to cap off this project, at the end of the sixth day, God created humans as a special act of creation, as the only object of creation made in the image of God. Then God put us in charge of everything that came before, and in the story, we humans are granted dominion over the earth and all its living things. Now, there, of course, other interpretations of this story that are possible, this sermon is not intended to be a critique of that text itself, but rather the interpretation of that text that has taken hold in the Western imagination. And that interpretation is centered on our specialness and our dominion. But evolution takes the idea of the special creation of human life, the life that is radically different from other kinds of living beings, 
and replaces it with the idea that all life, including our own, is the product of one continuously unfolding process set in motion ultimately by the birth of the universe. Evolution replaces the six days of Genesis with 14 billion years, give or take, 12 billion years from the Big Bang to make a Milky Way galaxy, to shape and cool and properly water a nutrient-rich planet Earth, an unknown amount of time for some of those nutrients to spontaneously organize into replicating molecule chains, and then two billion years, give or take, for those replicating molecule chains to organize into living cells, and then for those living cells to diversify into the life we see all around us. So Charles Darwin surmised, and science tends to confirm his view, that all things alive today are the common descendants of one ancestral organism. And from this single root grew the tangled tree of life, right? As species branched off and branched off and branched off from their forebears, each finding their own unique way to make a successful living in the ecosystem. But popular depictions of evolution often greatly simplify this process to show this sort of linear march of life forms through time. Right, we've all seen the posters, right, with the fish like crawling out of the water, evolving into the reptile, then the mammal, then primates and humans. The arrangement visually suggests a process of replacement, of one thing turning into another, newer, better thing. It reads like a story of progress, where humans are at the end of progress. And in this way, the emotional content of the old dominion idea of humanity's special specialness is preserved within the new framework of evolution. We think naturally in terms of lower and higher life forms and we place ourselves at the top of this ladder of being. And so the question is sometimes, I'm honestly asked, uh, thinking of life as this progression from worse to better as of replacement, that if monkeys evolved into humans, why are monkeys still around? If the lower life forms evolved into higher life forms, why weren't the lower life forms replaced? And this is an honest question, but it involves a misunderstanding because of course, monkeys did not evolve into humans, but rather monkeys and humans share a common ancestor. And what that means is at some point there was a species that was not a monkey and not a human, and some of its descendants settled on the monkey way of being in the world, which is awesome, and some of its descendants settled on the human way of being in the world, which is equally awesome. Evolution is not a linear progression, it is a branch giving rise to more branches which give rise to more branches which give rise to more branches. And our human species then is like one tiny green shoot on one of millions of branches on the tree of life, each having come into existence in exactly the same way, each sharing the common trait of having found an awesome way of being in the world. How absurd then to circle our one tiny shoot on this enormous bristling plant of healthy successful growths and say, well this is clearly the reason this plant exists, and all of the whole must exist to service this little shoot. Evolution has been called a second Copernican revolution. The first Copernican revolution said the earth and thus humankind is not at the center of the universe. 
but lies in one corner of a spiraling galaxy amidst billions of galaxies. Evolution, the second Copernican revolution, says humankind is not at the center of the biosphere either. We're not a special act of creation made by God on the sixth day and given dominion over the earth. We are not above other living beings. In this way, evolution proposes a radical decentering of the human story and the overall story of life on earth. We're one species among millions, all created by the same unthinking process, neither more nor less likely, neither more nor less chosen, neither more nor less destined for a bright future. Evolution tells us in the words of UU Minister Forrest Church that we come from a common source and we share a common destiny. And what a common source it is. Born of ancient stars whose matter traversed billions of miles of space to shape our galaxy, our world, and ultimately become our very flesh and blood. We have stardust in our bones and stardust in our veins, and our story is as old as the universe and inseparable from the universe. What mystery and magic and dignity there is in this story of life. Now, you can certainly believe in evolution and still believe in some concept of God or deity. Some 30% of Americans who believe in evolution also believe the process was set in motion or somehow inspired by or guided by a divine being. Scientifically speaking, the theory of evolution doesn't require a helper God to work, but it's not incompatible with a helper God. What I would say to anyone who does believe that evolution is the means by which God created life is to consider the story of evolution then as an alternative creation text and ask, what is the meaning of this story? It is a story which emphasizes our kinship, our interconnectedness, our interdependence with all other living things. It is not a story of dominion. The dominion mythos, I believe, has been a ticking time bomb within our culture. So long as humans were limited, in their capacity to materially affect their environment. This worldview might condone the local exploitation of animals, the local despoliation of the environment, but it could not break out to do global harm. But for the last several centuries, our astonishing increase in technological prowess has been harnessed to the engine of global capitalism to exert our dominion over the world to an unprecedented degree and too late we are discovering as climate change and species extinction spiral out of control that our pretense at dominion is an illusion, is an illusion that we remain in the end utterly dependent on natural systems vastly greater than our ability to predict and control. We need a creation story that emphasizes our kinship with the web of life. We need a creation story that restores the dignity of the natural world and all its living inhabitants. We need a creation story that brings us back into the oneness with the processes that nurture and sustain us. And we need a creation story that reconnects us to the awesomeness and the enchantment of the natural world. And those creation stories exist in other cultures. Biologist Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is also a member of the Potawatomi Nation, writes in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, 
She writes, in the Western tradition, there is a recognized hierarchy of beings with, of course, the human being on top, the pinnacle of evolution, the darling of creation. But in native ways of knowing, she says, human people are often referred to as the younger brothers of creation. We say that humans have the least experience with how to live and thus to most to learn. And we must look to our teachers among the other species. For example, she says their wisdom is apparent in the way that they live. They teach us by example. They have been on the earth far longer than we have been and have had more time to figure things out. And so in a 2015 article called Nature Needs a New Pronoun, Robin Wall Kimmerer relates how Darwin's fundamental scientific discovery that all life is not just interrelated but literally related, that all living things are kin. She says this insight is already embedded in the very language of some native people. Kimmerer says that in her native language of Anishinaabe, which was erased from her family in the boarding schools and which she is relearning, it is impossible to speak of a living thing as an it. In Anishinaabe and many other indigenous languages, she says, we use the same words to address all living beings as we do our family, because they are our family. And imagine if embedded in our language itself was the idea that nature is our kin, our kin. How different would our world be? Would our oceans be dying? Would our forests be disappearing? Would the mass extinction of non-human species be an unrecognized, uncontested, and unchallenged reality of the modern world as it, in fact, is today? How differently would we orient ourselves to the world if we saw it as kin, which it is? Darwin wrote, there is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. There is grandeur in this view of life. It is the view of life to which our seventh Unitarian Universalist principle calls us, one rooted in the most profound respect for the great web of being, in profound gratitude to life and our relationship to it, and one which must call us to some grief for the ways in which we have dishonored that relationship, for the ways in which we have torn the fabric of that web. Written into each creature, howsoever humble is the history of the universe, you, me, the squirrels chasing each other on the lawn, the insects churning the soil underneath, the birds serenading us above. We are all part of the same ancient story of life unfolding since before the stars even lit the skies. And within us and through us all moves the same creative force bringing endless new forms of life into being. The same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day, says the poet Tagore, runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measures. May we encounter this enchanted world and know its ancient beauty, feel our deep kinship with life teeming all around, and then let us learn a new creation story, 
Not a story of separation and domination, but a story of connection and care, a story of kinship. And may this new story be a story of renewal, a story of hope, and a story of healing for our world that so needs healing. Blessed be and amen. Closing words 
are by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Know the ways of the ones who take care of you so that you may take care of them. Introduce yourself. Be accountable as the one who comes asking for life. Ask permission before taking and abide by the answer. Sustain the ones who sustain you and the earth will last forever. May our relationship with life around us be rooted in respect, curiosity, and mutuality, receiving the earth's gifts with gratitude, and honoring her in return with care. Blessed be, amen, and go in peace. Thank you.